Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Hey, Pastor. Hey, Dr. Robin. How are you? You know what? I, I'm doing well, but I am concerned about Portland. Uh, yes. Yeah. I was just talking about that with my partner um, earlier today. We, we had a very similar conversation. A, like, what the fuck? Like, what, yeah. what is going on? And why, why are we letting it happen? Yeah. And I just listened to the governor of Oregon talk about Trump troops don't belong in Portland. And, right. and I agree. And I'm just the way, I don't know, this is like a playbook of, from Nazi Germany or Latin American, you know, where, where the military would just come in in unmarked vans and take people. I mean, this is, this is why 30,000 people disappeared in Latin America right. years ago, you know? So I, I just, I'm really concerned about what's happening right now. And I feel like people are just reacting and and not responding from a grounded place of of history and analysis and ethics. I I don't know. I just feel really concerned. I'm with you. I mean, we we are seeing in real time the the way that our um, fetish for war and our fetish for militia based control um yeah. is is affecting the people that live in um you know f a, a country that you know is is supposed to be um you know using those factions only to secure our freedom not to limit our freedom right and we're yeah it's it's definitely an interesting time i think that i think we we have and I think anytime we look at a, a movement like what's happening now and, and what we've seen over the last, um, you know, over the last two months since George Floyd was murdered, you know, when you have a rise in action and a rise in um, voices and a rise in embodiment work in the streets, uh, there is a natural reaction on behalf of those who hold power to respond in kind. And this is, this is exactly what's happening there. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it what's necessary, but I think it's, it's natural for us to see this kind of thing happening. And we've got to figure out how we're going to, how we're going to battle it and how we're going to take yeah. it on and how we're going to minimize it so that um, we don't find ourselves in an even more precarious situation 
especially as we lead up to the election. Um, yeah. Because this this president is going to continue to do things like this that uh, puff his chest and enhance what people will perceive to be his power um, simply because he has very few other tactics left in order to right. make himself out to be someone who's worthy of, 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 you know, doing this job for another four years. Mm -hmm. Well, so I got Portland on my mind and then I've also got John Lewis and CT Vivian. Yes. Yes. And so many of our elders are becoming ancestors and, just thinking a lot about um, how do we continue the fight? How do we how do we continue the arc of moral courage? Um, and I don't know. I just feel I feel sad. I'm sad. I also think that we have to be really, really mindful to watch the things that we've been taught and to emulate those things in real time. I mean, leaders like Vivian and Lewis showed us exactly how things could be done in a nonviolent way, um, in a way that is led first by love and intention and second by, um, you know, uh, standing up for injustices. Um, and, and we've, you know, we, we've got to, we've got to, Take heed to those lessons, take heed to those mm -hmm. lessons, pay attention, echo their work, um, not let their their work um, rest along with them. And I I loved as, as as sad as I was yesterday in in seeing the all of the memorials and the tributes that folks were providing. I also um, spent some time reading um, you know, catching up and rereading things that I had read before, speeches that Lewis had given on the floor of the of the um, Congress, um, you know, things that he had said in podcasts. And I was so uplifted. I was rejuvenated by that. Yeah. Right. And I think that if we if we can continue to be a people that um, remember ourselves, re knit ourselves together in the. Um, in the in the vein of of these amazing leaders i think we'll i think we'll be okay well and i love that today we have a guest on where we can kind of bridge together present action with with our ancestors yeah and, and very excited to have kat armas on today who is writing a book called abuelita theology and um, is a Cuban person living in the occupied territory in L.A. And we're very excited to have you, Kat. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Um, yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit about um, Abuelita theology and what brought you to that kind of work. Yeah. Um, well, um, First of all, I'm, I'm so thankful to hear you guys just kind of dialogue about elders becoming ancestors and, you know, not letting the work of of our elders kind of rest along with them. Um, yeah, because that's sort of what, 
led me to the work that I'm doing now. Um, so I am Cuban American, born and raised in Miami, Florida, which is sort of like the, you know, the hub of Cubans in this country. Yeah, North Havana, as they call it. Yes, exactly. Um, which is also very interesting because it is also a very um, conservative, very Republican place. Um, and that, you know, that also comes with, I, I, I think it's just so interesting. I've been obviously doing so much history in Cuba as I'm writing this book and, and just so much history on you know, the United States and how they have interacted with Cuban politics and just how messy and honestly just disgusting a lot of that is. And just seeing how um, just so many people who are unfortunately traumatized by totalitarianism and how the U.S., I, I always say that, you know, that's what the, the U.S. does is that they create vulnerable situations and vulnerable people and then they convince them, especially in Latin America and the Caribbean, and then they convince them that they need that they need the U.S. in order to, to be free or be right. relieved or liberated from these liberal uh, situa right. from these yeah. situations, yes, right? Yes. So that's what happened with Cuba. And so you have, you know, the U.S. sort of created this monster, um, uh, the, the situation, the, the dictator prior to Castro, um, Batista, and he was a right wing dictator supported, backed by the U.S. And, mm -hmm. you know, he completely traumatized the Cuban people. And then here comes Castro, a left wing person wanting to sort of, you know, liberate and, and, and de-link from America. And then, um, you know, that turns into a sort of totalitarian situation in its own way. Um, obviously, different in, in many ways. Um, but yeah, so I, I come from a history of people who are just sort of traumatized by this. And so they arrive to the U.S. The U.S. is their sort of salvation, right? They're, oh my goodness, right. the land of the free. And, and um, they get here and then they start sort of internalizing this oppression mm -hmm. and, you know, turning it around on their own people. I mean, it is just this very messy and weird um yeah, weird place to come from. And so in my work, I, I really want to look at, you know, this complicated history and I want to look at um, the history of colonization, right? The history, I, I talk about um, imperial Catholicism and how, and how that, or excuse me, Iberian Catholicism and, and how they colonized the Taino peoples of, of the Caribbean. And then how sort of Protestant re-evangelization kind of came in and did the same thing all over again, yeah. right? It's just so okay. complicated. But anyway, so I do, I come from, uh, you know, Cuban American background. My, my family, they immigrated to the U.S. Uh, right after the Castro Revolution. And what's interesting is that um, there was three waves that came from Cuba. Um, the first wave were, you know, your upper class white Cubans, and they they were able to come, you know, on their yachts and on their planes and sort of leave this, this socialist, you know, environment. Right. And then you had the second wave. Um, so my family, my um, grandfather, he was, he was part of the second wave. My family, they weren't they were sort of just your, your middle class, um, you know, middle class people. They lived out in El Campo, out in the, in the countryside. And um, when things started changing, you know, due to Castro coming in and, and things were just really, really chaotic at the time. And so my, my grandfather, he was one of the people that was trying to sort of resist against um, any sort of totalitarian movements. And, you know, he, at, at, at first Castro was like this beacon of light and this beacon of like, okay, you know, freedom. Uh, and then things started turning kind of weird. And so he was an anti-Castro actually, you know, dissenter. Uh, and 
he escaped one night on a boat um, because they told him they're co- you know the government's coming for you in the morning and they're going to take you to jail. And so he was like, you know, they ha- they had devised a plan. So he was able to escape and he came to Miami. Um, well, he went to Miami because I'm no longer there, even though I feel like I am. But uh, he went to Miami and then a year later, my family came over. And so I think, um, you know, I just come from a long history of of just a lot of complexity, um, Mm -hmm. identity searching, right? Like who are we now that we are no longer in our land or in our place? Um, But we are in a sort of pseudo land, a pseudo place because Cubans have reconstructed their identity in Miami and, you know, have gained power and privilege because it's 95% Cubans. And so Mm -hmm. it's a really complex, um, yeah, background. And so as a, as a person who identifies as a Christian, um, trying to understand, you know, as someone who, uh, is informed by, you know, the Bible and in a general sense, right. Um, what does that mean to live in a, a, within a complex identity, Mm -hmm. um, very nuanced, um, traumatized in many ways, seeking to be liberated in many ways. And also in many ways, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar, I'm sure you are, with Miguel de la Torre. He's a Cuban-American um, theologian. And so one of the things that he says, and it's very similar to my own experience, you know, in Miami, I'm, I'm part of the dominant culture. And so I, I basically, I went to sleep as a white person in Miami one day, and I woke up as a brown person when I left Miami, you know, when I moved to New Orleans. And so it's also mm-hmm. this idea of having, you know, existing in multiple realities and multiple worlds and multiple cultures. And so my work with Abuelita Theology is trying to understand, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? What is that? How do we live that out? And how do women, particularly, um, you know, poor, marginalized people uh like my own grandmother and so i i I focus on my grandmother because she kind of showed up here as a poor didn't have any money and a Mm -hmm. marginalized woman um and so how does how does that what what can we learn from that what do we take from that um being you know westernized people um what can we learn from the most marginalized in our midst um and so i i i look at sort of um, constructing that, but also even within that critiquing many aspects of, you know, liberation theology that could also perpetuate, um, you know, patriarchal ways of being and thinking, um, you know, trying to, trying to develop a very complex, nuanced, um, yeah, way of existing in the world. And so uh, coming from that, from that space. Yeah, I love it. I love, um, how you're bringing together the the history of your own people and weaving it together with um theology and scripture and whatnot and i and i wonder what are what are some of the stories of your ancestors because you know the the cuban the cuban reality is a complex reality as you've talked about and it's a reality of resistance it's a reality of totalitarianism um, it's, it's many things. And so right. when Castro passed away, people were really on all, all these different sides of, yeah. of, of the issue and whatnot. And so I feel really curious about, you know, because we live in a world where we often don't pay attention to ancestors and yes. we often don't pay attention to the stories that precede us. And we right. often don't pay attention to the ways in which we've inherited toxic stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel curious about 
the role of ancestors in creating a, a vision for the future. Can you can you talk a little bit about about that? Yes, definitely. Um, and I think that's huge. Part of my, you know, sort of decolonizing journey has been trying to understand the role of my ancestors. And, and you know, within that, understanding the complex um, reality that comes, you know, with a, a whole history of people that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm essentially sitting on their shoulders. Um, so for me, my grandmother, like I said, she and and I focus on her obviously because this is sort of where my story where I, my story takes off from. But um, you know, she grew up on on the countryside of Cuba, and she what was very important to her was her popular Catholicism, right? And I say mm-hmm. popular Catholicism because there's a there was a difference, and you know, in Latin America there is a big difference between you know institutionalized Catholicism where you can go to the church and you can kind of you know do the the church thing, but for a lot of people who live on the countryside they can't make it to a church, which are usually right. you know in the city. Um, so they engage in a lot of popular Catholicism, which has a lot of a lot of roots in African spirituality, right? Santeria, a lot of these things. And so a lot of that engages, um, you know, uh, the veneration of Mary and, and a lot of these saints and a lot of, you know, rituals and practices in the home that, um, that, that center, that really provide a, a source of spirituality and a source of faith. Um, and so for me growing up, you know, when my, when my family moved here, moved to Miami, I grew up sort of on the heels of that, right? I mean, they, my grandmother ended up joining a church and, and she was very connected and very committed to the church. Um, you know, but she had her rituals and her saints and that, that really meant a lot to her and a lot of her sort of popular Catholicism in the home. And that meant a lot to me too. You know, one of my grandmother's closest friends, um, you know, and I write about her in my book and how she lived in the outside, she lived in the heart of Little Havana, you know, it was a poor woman. Um, she was, she worked at a home, uh, she, you know, cleaned a, a rich person's home in Miami. And she got caught up in a web of just power and abuse of, of, you know, the, the, the owner of the home, the husband, you know, they started having an affair and all of these complicated realities. But what grounded her was, you know, her shrine, her altar, she would come home and, and she would, you know, that was sort of her place of resistance and her place of faith and her place of spirituality. And I remember, I, you know, I would spend a lot of time with this woman and we would, you know, we would ride the buses in Miami and we would go up and down Calle Ocho and Little Havana. And then we'd come back and I'd sit next to her and we'd, you know, I'd watch her as, as she really, like, that was the source of her faith, you know, it was lighting her, her little velita for, you know, um, for, for the La Virgen, for Mary, you know, and that was her source of of faith. And so that shaped a lot of my understanding of spirituality, of how it can be, um, how it, how it takes many shapes and many forms and how it can be deeply personal and deeply spiritual. And so, you know, that was my, my, what I experienced growing up. And then, um, you know, in my early twenties, I just sort of got wrapped up in, you know, just popular evangelicalism and popular, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and because I grew up Catholic, I didn't know much about denominations. I didn't, you know, I I didn't grow up evangelical. I didn't, I didn't know, like, it was really funny because I'm just like, okay, yeah, sure. This is cool. And so I got involved with um, a local church and it was a, I, I didn't know this at the time, but it was a, you know, white evangelical church. I mean, granted it was Cubans, but yes, you're white Cubans. Um, and then I just, you know, I, I, as I got more and more into, um, 
your your sort of just white evangelical theology, the more I was disconnected from my roots, disconnected yes. from this popular Catholicism, to the yeah. point that you know I started to see that as evil, right? Like pagan, like worshiping yeah. the saints and all of these like things that I just it didn't feel that way growing up, right? Like it felt like sacred and beautiful and holy. And all of a sudden now I'm being told that it's, you know, that my grandmother needs to be saved, that I need to evangelize to her and make sure that she, you know, comes to know Jesus. And I'm like, but I thought she did, right? Like, I, you know, she, she loved God and she, you know, so that was sort of like my journey into, into kind of starting to, it, it was, a, it was a sort of journey into it of, of disconnect and of, and of delinking and of, and of just completely, um, you know, breaking that tie that I have to my ancestors, to the popular Catholicism, to La Virgen, that is was so mm-hmm. important to my family. And then, you know, as I began the journey of decolonization, I have sort of come back to those roots, right? Sort of just trying to understand, well, what, what does it look like to engage, you know, the ancestors in this? What does it look like to engage, to think about, you know, the Taino people that gave birth to, you know, that, that, are, that, essentially I am here because of them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that has been huge for me is just, um, kind of, you know, reconnecting with these, you know, saints that have meant so much to, uh, my grandmother and, and that, that really formed me as Mm -hmm. I became a person of, with my own faith and my own spirituality. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love the, I love this, um, this mental picture that you draw cat of, uh, like unknitting yourself from the theology of your grandmother and then kind of re-knitting yourself back together mm-hmm. now as you're doing this research. It's, it's, it's almost as if I can envision in my mind's eye that you're using the exact same thread. Like you unknitted, you, you know, you, you, you unknitted yourself from the work and kind of saved all the pieces and parts. And now you're reforming it and re-knitting it back together. And it just, it's just this beautiful kind of mental image that I, that I'm receiving um, (laughs) as you, as you talk about it. It's it's really, it's really lovely. I, I wonder, I, I was so struck by your, um, your, your thinking around, um, kind of this this disconnect and or disembodiment of of a, of the Cuban people um, during their forced and sometimes not forced migration, and and how they uh, lost and or found um, or refound their identities um, when they when they found their way to Miami. It's it's not that dissimilar to many of the immigration stories that we know and and have learned in scripture. Um, this this understanding of a people being um, being removed from forcibly removed from their land, um, a, a dictator or a king, um, you know putting rules in place that minimize the liberation of others. And so they, they move to another place where they can, you know, be the most full version of themselves. Um, I, I'd love for you to, to dig a little deeper into the kind of the scriptural undergirding of um, Abolita theology and how you see those threads knitted together. 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so it's funny, the first thing that actually hooked my attention, um, you know, besides obviously reading about uh, the history of my people and all of those things, but when I, you know, as, as I, because I do, I would consider myself someone who um, studies the Bible. And, and one of the reasons why I am so interested in the Bible is because of how it can be used in so many different ways, right? Like the right. Bible can be this like book for liberation and, and freedom and, you know, and love. And, but then of course the complete opposite. And so, and the way that I think of it is, you know, the Bible's not going anywhere, right? Like people are going to keep reading it and, it's, and people are going to keep using it in atrocious ways. Right. It's a, it's a positive and a negative. <laughs> right, right. So how can I use, you know, my um, understanding of it, my interpretation of it, my just engagement with it as a form of liberation? Um, because it is going to be used the other way too. And so I am fascinated with the stories and I am fascinated with, I mean, a huge part of scripture is the idea of ancestors, right? The cloud of witnesses, right. the people who came before us, like this is huge. Um, you know, a, a lot of what God tells God's people is, you know, don't oppress, or, you know, you've been liberated by, you know, from the oppressors. Now don't turn around and oppress. Like, it's just this constant, um, yeah, remember, right? Remember right. and remember. re, you know, right. And so that's something that is very uh, important to me and something that really catches my attention when I think of Awalita theology. Another thing, um, oh, so, so anyways, going back to what I was saying that really caught my eye was, as one day I was reading um, in Second Timothy, and Paul's writing. It's the intro, and Paul's writing to Timothy, and, and Paul's saying, you know, um, remember your ancestors, you know, from which like you came, Timothy. You know, your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And in my head, I'm like, wait a minute, you know, like Paul's literally telling Timothy, like, remember your grandmother, your grandmother and your mother, your ancestors who came before you, because you were essentially formed by their faith. And I'm like, whoa, this is Awalita theology. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, Paul, yeah. I'm like, Paul's literally telling Timothy, like, you would not be where you are without your abuela and your mom, which is essentially, you know, all of our stories. Um, and so what is it about? Because we don't know anything about his grandmother. We don't know anything about, we know a lot about Timothy or somewhat about Timothy, but right. we don't know anything about Lois or we don't know anything about Eunice. And so what's there? What is this deep? I mean, there's just a well of stuff that we can, granted, not necessarily get from scripture about them, but just in general about our grandmothers, our mothers, the ancestors, the cloud of witnesses that have come before us, those who have resisted and persisted uh, throughout history. And so I started digging into the stories of, of overlooked characters, right? Overlooked women. I mean, just a, a small example, when we talk about the Syrophoenician woman or the Canaanite woman, the one that Jesus calls her a dog, why do we always focus so much on Jesus calling her a dog? And what about her faith? She was one of the only women in the New Testament who was called a woman of great faith by Jesus. So why right. is she overlooked? Right. And we're just focusing on Jesus and what he says, you know? And so we're, we're constantly, you know, it's sort of like our gaze just, or, you know, in general in society, our, or we've been taught, our gaze has overlooked these women of resistance and persistence. I mean, obviously the, the Hebrew midwives who lied to Pharaoh, right? They resisted and they um, right. stood up against empire in order to save Moses, who would eventually liberate the people, you know? And so we're, you know, we sit on the backs or we rest on the, and, and scripture really is just on the backs of these women and on the backs of these overlooked characters. Um, and, and I will say something that I, I do 
I also think is important is while we can take these stories of liberation and scripture, I'm, I'm also very careful to also make sure I'm critiquing it, right? And so, um, you know, a, a, a perfect example is La Virgen, the Virgin Mary, right? And how she has become mm-hmm. in Latin America, she is, you know, the symbol of like the ideal woman for, for women, right? Uh, for poor women. And so a critique of liberation theology that I really am thankful for is that liberation theology in many ways traditionally has been upheld by men and it's a very patriarchal mm-hmm. using Mary as a sort of, you know, this perfect woman who is a virgin, right? Who She's a perfect mother. She is poor. And so people argue, well, it's not, it's not like poor women are usually virgins, right? Poor women, they live in situations that they have to do, you know, dr- uh, they have to survive. Right, and so right. a lot of times they're right. not these poor virgin mothers at home. You know what I mean? Like they are survival. And that's what I mean when I talk about the nuance yeah. of survival, um, of poverty, of, of of these real life situations that causes people to, you know, do indecent things or live in quote unquote indecent ways that Christianity or culture wouldn't um, consider holy or sacred or right or good or true or whatever you want to call it, right? And so I, lo- I love to look at these women in scripture. I mean, we have women in the Bible who um, they lived lives, lives of persistence and resistance, but also they were quote unquote indecent. <laughs> like they did things mm-hmm. that were quote unquote indecent. And so I love that sort of tension. Um, I want to highlight the resistance and I want, and I also want to highlight, uh, I, also, I want to, you know, remove this romanticizing of poverty or this romanticizing of our grandmothers, because also in a lot of ways, our grandmothers perpetuated um, patriarchy. Why? Because they needed to survive. Right. right. So like in right. a lot of ways, you know, and so that's something that I also want to take into consideration because we, we can find these notions of liberation in scripture, but we also find ways that women in scripture do perpetuate the patriarchal culture, which which they were in. And I argue that's right. because they needed to live. They just needed to survive, you know? And so that's sort of the, you know, what I see in the Bible and what I, you know, see in our culture. And in a lot of ways, we overlook that, you know, that interstitial space, that middle space where, you know, the indecency, the quote unquote indecency happens, but also where the resistance and the perpetuation and the survival and all these things happen in that middle space. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a light and a dark to, to all of it. Right. I mean, you know, you, you right. started out kind of referencing, you know, Timothy and um, what we do and we don't know. I mean, how problematic it is that, you know, uh, how, how, how problematic Paul is in, in and of in and of himself. Right. Right. Um, and, right. and yet in that instance, he removes um, an expected patriarchal standard and calls on Timothy's grandmother and mother, not on Timothy's uncle and father. Right, right. Um, or grandfather and uncle in, in the way that Timothy should remember his upbringing and remember his faith. And there's, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's a light and a darkness to Paul. There's a light and a darkness to Timothy. There's a light and a darkness to, you know, the women that that you've mentioned and and it speaks to this you know we we will we will always attempt to find the liberative quality in every story when we seek it and yet both from our survival mentality and simply from a life and times standpoint 
there there are radical problems with with the with the character right. and the story in and of itself. Um, right, right. I'm struck yeah. by your I, I'm struck by your your work um, uh, uh, and and the mentioning of of your grandmother and and the way that she formed the the um, undergirding that you came to understand as your own faith. I am, I'm the product of a, of a, of a faithful grandmother as well. Um, mm. I am also really lucky that I have an aunt who, um, is the keeper of the stories in, in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, she is the, um, one who, you know, understands and has dug deeply into our, our genealogy. She's the one that, um, really, um, helps all of us, um, a generation removed, remember who, who it was that formed us and, and how we came to be the people that we, that we came to be. Um, Mm. but in that keeper of the story role, um, I, I often hear the, the, beautiful stories or the positive stories or the things that made our family survive, the things that made our family um, different and surpass other families in, in, you know, in our town, the success of my grandfather, Mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the, my, my grandmother was a a nurse um, in, in the forties, in the 1940s and 1930s, which in and of itself was a bit of a, a stretch mm-hmm. for for women in those days, and um, can you speak a little bit to this um, this concept of holding stories, um, but also being willing to or or capable of telling the stories in in both positive and in not so not so positive ways? Yeah, so I feel like that is. Um... So I always kind of go back to this, you know, idea of like Western colonial and like binaries and dichotomies. And, you know, like we we're so not in our culture in general, uh, Western culture is so not used to seeing the complexity of these stories. Right. Um, And so we want to I think like you were saying before, like they're either stories of liberation or they're not, or like, you know, Paul sucks or he doesn't, or, you know, um, and so I I think, you know, we, Western culture is not used to um, existing with multiple things existing at the same time. Right. So like a story of my grandmother, um, she, you know, her husband, my grandfather died before I was born. And they, they think that that was just due to the trauma and the stress of him, you know, kind of hopping on a boat in the middle of the night and arriving at the shores of Miami and just all the, just everything that he sort of went through, um, just killed him. And so he died a few years after he arrived in Miami. And, um, you know, my grandmother raised three children by herself. And, and so she joined the church, the Catholic church and, um, you know, this, she met a friend and, and he was sort of like 
I considered him my grandfather um, because he was always around and he was just in love with her and she just never wanted to marry him. She just never wanted to be married again. She didn't want to marry, you know, she didn't want to get married. Um, but they were really close. I mean, literally 30, 40, 50 years. And right before he died, um, he was in his, I mean, she was, she's 90 now. So she must've been in her late seventies. He was in his mid eighties. He was several years older. Um, he was on his deathbed and she decided at that moment, I want to marry you. And it was right before he died, she just decided let's wow. get married, right? And it was this bizarre thing. <laughs> and I, as a, you know, I was younger, I didn't understand. I was just like, oh, you know, it's love story. And like, wow, how beautiful, <laughs> you know, she wanted to marry him on his deathbed. Um, but it wasn't until I got older that I realized like the only reason why she married him was because he had no family and he needed someone to sign for him, you know, when he died. And she wanted to make sure that she could take care of him in the last few months or few years that he had left. And so for me, now looking back, it's sort of like, you know, she was her whole life resisted like these notions of this, this marriage, you know, resisted marriage, resisted. But then at the same time, like she was, you know, she, she refused to just, you know, her only love was her husband. Like she only wanted to, you know, her, her husband who had died. And, and so she was sort of existing in this complicated, like, this is my friend and I love him, but I don't know, you know, like this her whole life, she ends up marrying him. And to me, I see that as a sort of like, you know, she had to do what she had to do in order to, you know, fight the system or agree with this or whatever she had to mm -hmm. do with the system in order to, um, make sure that she took care of this man who had taken care of her her whole life, right? So she wanted to take care of this man. And so it's a, this complicated, you know, love story, you know, it's not really a love story, but it's like, you know, and so I think in situations like that, I see that as a sort of abuelita theology in the sense that, um, you know, women, a, a lot of these, you know, marginalized, poor marginalized women, immigrant women, like my grandmother, they have to make you know, choices or they have to do things that a lot of times we don't understand, right? Um, whether it's resisting, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, or whether it's having to give in to, you know, the system or resist the system or, you know, but it's these complicated realities. Um, and so I think, of, so this is what I look for. Um, yeah. And a lot of the stories of people in the Bible, a lot of the stories of people in our midst, it's just this idea of, you know, just complicated realities of, of giving into and resisting both at the same time, not romanticizing, but also acknowledging um, the ways that liberation is sort of pumping through our veins as people who, um, who come from uh, generations of people who have been doing this for a long time. Hmm. The, what, what strikes me about the story that you just told is that she becomes a widow. Right. Twice. Yeah. And um, we don't think about the marginalization of becoming a widow mm -hmm. and how do we, I mean, I just, um, I don't know why that strikes me, but yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder, Kat, is there a, so one of the things that, that Robin and I spend a lot of time on this podcast kind of digging into is the ways in which oftentimes, all the times, whiteness is problematic in, in this, mm -hmm. this work of liberation. Um, mm -hmm. is, is, this, is this understanding of... Um, Abolita theology does it does it have the capacity 
to also hold the complexity of white privilege and the the supremacy that undergirds so many white ancestors and the and the stories that they bring to the work um or do you see this this being um very much a a theology that's centered on um ancestors of color and and, and, and if that's the case, then how do, how do those of us who identify as white um, also kind of uh, grasp these stories in ways that, that can, that can um, inform our theology and, 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 and serve us in, in this work in the world? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so because you know, where I, where I come from, um, I, I would consider myself someone with mestiza roots, right? I have African, uh, because coming from the Caribbean, right? Like I have Spanish from Spain, um, ancestry and, and, and indigenous ancestry and, you know, um, Africans were trafficked to the Caribbean very early on. And so African mm-hmm. roots. Um, and so it's just very, this, this mixing of, of people, of cultures, of race, of, of, of ethnicity, of identity. Um, but as far as Awelita theology, and so I say that to say that I, that's the, the place where I speak from, of course. And so when I think of, um, you know, as I, I read of indigenous writers and, and, and people and thinkers, um, I'm, I'm looking at Mesoamerican indigenous peoples. Um, but I think that, you know, how you mentioned, right, that your, you know, your grandmother, or yeah, your, uh, forgive me if I'm misquoting yeah, your grandmother, grandmother or your mother. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Was a nurse yeah. or, you know, in the thirties. My grandmother, so, yes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we, right. So we come from, you know, all of us, um, we all obviously have a, a background and a past and, and we all come from a, a history of peoples who have overcame or who have resisted or have persisted. Um, and so I do see this as, as something that I feel like, you know, white people, it's just as important for white people as it is for people of color to dig into their ancestral roots, right? To understand um, whether the good or the bad or the ugly, or, you know, to kind of dig into um, our ancestral roots, to just understand that we come from or where we come from or, or who has, you know, perhaps there are people, um, in all of our cultures, you know, like I said, who have done both, who have both resisted and who have both perpetuated. And so what can we learn from that? What, what, what can we gauge from that? Where have our ancestors, um, what, where do we sit on their shoulders where they have taught us, you know, instances of, of, uh, streams or strings of liberation that we can hang on to, um, that we can learn from. And so I think, um, one of my favorite writers, uh, she is, a well, she passed, uh, Gloria Ansaldua. I'm sure you may have heard of her. Um, she's a queer feminist writer and something that she talks about, you know, is that we hold multiple cultures and multiple, you know, in our identities. I mean, we hold me as a Cuban American woman, I still hold whiteness right in, inside of me. Mm-hmm. That's still, you know, pumping through my veins, unfortunately, because I live in this culture. Um, and so we all hold these multiple identities. And so how can we um, dig into each of them and honor them where they need to be honored? And then, you know, take them apart where they need to be taken apart. Um, you know, I think because we all live in a 
capitalistic society and we're all, you know, we all perpetuate that too. You know, there, there is so much that needs to be untangled and detangled. And so something that I, you know, that I want to do in, in Awarita theology is really look to those, the, the knots in our past and the knots that need to be untangled. And so for white people or for in our, in our wanting to, um, you know, delink or uh, decolonize from whiteness. Um, it's it's looking into these you know multiple identities and looking into these situations of 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 resistance and these situations of perpetuation and um, you know just trying to to like you know how I was mentioning earlier you know using that same thread. Um, to unlink and then to delink, um, and right. being able to hold multiple things at the same time, you know, um, using that same thread. And so I think that, you know, like we all know, right. Um, our liberation is bound together. And so when we're all seeking through our ancestors, through our, you know, your grandmother, who was a, you know, a nurse in thirties through all of this, like, you know, how can we contend for a better future through looking at our past? And so I think there's mm. some of it for all of us. Yeah. I mean, I'm really lucky that I have a, that I have, um, a a relative who is able to, to, to share these stories with me. Right. I just, I want to make sure that, you know, for those of us that, that, um, have a, a primarily European, um, kind of construct to our lineage that, that we're really mindful that, you know, the stories of, success or um, kind of beating the odds when it comes to, you know, having white ancestors is in no way, is in no way um, a, uh, a, 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 doesn't give us bragging rights when it comes to, right, 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 right. when it comes to the, you know, the, the liberation right. that, that we've seen from um, black and indigenous people of color. Um, so thank right, you. Right. Thanks for, thanks for, you know, breaking that down a little bit for me. Yeah. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about how um, you you talked about at one point you woke up and you were brown, Mm -hmm. but 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 maybe you had thought of yourself as white, but not in the same way that people in this country think of themselves as white. Mm -hmm. Um, But do you find because I this is like you know i'm born of a mexican woman and anglo father and so Mm -hmm. i also have those mestizo roots right but i move in the world with power access and privilege because of my skin color Mm -hmm. because i am melanin deficient and i'm wondering if you also have that experience of being a latina but moving in the world as a white person because of how you're perceived yeah. And so that's, that's a good question. Cause that's something that I, I think about a lot, you know, of course I, I am a light skinned, you know, Latina. Um, mm-hmm. and so that comes with its own, you know, things that I, I need to, and like I said, you know, I, I come from Miami where there are a lot of white Cubans and, and they right, just right. completely internalized their whiteness and they, you know, yeah. <laughs> and it, yeah. And so I think, um, for me, I, so, okay. When I, was in Miami, like I said, I was part of the dominant culture, right? I, you know, Uh 
part of, I did not experience um, any sort of racism or any sort of anything like that or any sort of, you know, um, pushback because I'm a Cuban person. Um, but when I moved to uh, New Orleans and I was involved, I was, you know, engaged in a very, very, very white community. For me, it was more so a cultural clash. You know, I was raised by single mothers and a single grandmother. Um, I, you know, very matriarchal culture. I was, you know, that it was just the, the, the way that my people engage and, you know, we're loud, we're, you know, in your face and just all these things, all these cultural realities that come with, you know, being me. And then I moved to a very subculture of the subculture of the subculture of whiteness and white evangelicalism. And it was very much, I mean, um, definitely my skin tone um, offers me a lot of privileges in that moment. However, it was very cultural where I, you know, cultural clashes where I was just very much othered in that sense where my, you know, I had never been around white culture. I had never been around white, you know, that sort of, you know, Southern, um, and not, I'm not picking on Southernism, but, you know, just like the, the sort of yeah, yeah. that. So that was a very big thing for me. And so as far as when I say, you know, I woke up brown, I, I, I well, I take that from Miguel de la Torres or his words, but that sort of idea, like I woke up as a non-white person in, in New Orleans, um, because culturally there there was just a lot of differences. Now I will say, um, I live in Los Angeles now. Um, and you know, there are a lot of Latinos and a lot of Mexican actually uh, people obviously in, in, in Los Angeles. And so, um, I can tell in that sense, right. Because I am a very light skinned person that yes, I am very, I benefit very much by white privilege. And so that's stuff that I also need to deconstruct. And that's stuff that, mm-hmm. you know, as someone who I am, who speaks to these things as someone who is, who's working on Awalita theology, I think one of my greatest burdens is to, um, speak to that, to my own community, right. To make sure that I am, um, navigating my own community at the ways that I can through this, through white privilege. Um, because that's what happened when a lot of Cubans immigrated to, to the U S is that they could get mm-hmm. by because of their light mm-hmm. skin tone. And right. so, yeah. Right. And so it's a lot of um, deconstructing that. And and even that, when I talk about nuances and complexities and identity, there's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot of, you know, deconstructing and, and understanding of my own identity as someone with light skin, but with very, very, you know, big cultural differences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's good stuff. Yeah, it's just it's very complex. And I think that, yeah, yep. I mean, it's just it's a matter of just sitting in it, you know, um, something that I love about yeah. D and post-colonial studies is that what I'm, you know, been getting into is just allowing yourself to sit in the tension and in the complexity yeah. of it. Um, you know, we, some, I was listening to a podcast recently and it talked about, you know, how homesickness, right, is an essential uh, part of, of immigrant culture, of migrant families. And so that's something that, um, I feel like homesickness, even though I've never lived in Cuba, but my family, I mean, that is, it's, it's a big part of the, the Cuban identity is to long for, yeah. you know, the homeland, long for Cuba. And yeah. so I've always, I've grown up with a sense of longing and homesickness for somewhere that I've never lived, which is very, very mm-hmm. strange. Um, but, you know, we, I feel like we live in a culture where we want to, um, 
you know, we want to have, we want to arrive somewhere and then get there and then that's it. And so homesickness is yeah. sort of looked down upon like, no, we're a problem solving culture. Like that's why we love the five stages of grief because they're five stages. And then once we get to the fifth one, we're fine, you know? And so I think <laughs> <Yeah>. that something, <laughs> something that I, you know, I want to sit in is just, well, well, what if there is something about this homesickness or this longing that is in and of itself sacred and in and of itself holy, and we don't need to fight against it? What if we can just sit in it and what if we can meet the divine there, right? Meet the divine mm-hmm. in the homesickness, yeah. meet the divine mm-hmm. in yeah. the complexity of being of two worlds, of two cultures, of being someone who is is connected to another place, um, you know, another culture, but is also living in light skinned, you know, living with, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so it's this um, just sitting in that tension and sitting in the and seeing that tension as a place where you can meet the divine yeah in that nipala yes exactly <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah well this has been great this yeah, is phenomenal chat. i'm i'm so grateful that you have gifted us with your time i'm great i'm really excited about your your upcoming book um where when will it be out and um if it's going to be a while um where can our folks uh be in touch with you what's the best place for for them to to find out more about the work you're doing in the world on a on a day-to-day basis yeah so my book will be out next summer we don't have an exact date yet um my manuscript is due in august and so i'm sure once i submit that we'll know a little bit better but um yeah so next summer so until then you can follow me on twitter um it's at cat underscore armas a-r-m-a-s um same thing with instagram uh, my website catarmas.com amazing mm. go and follow all those places yes. and watch for the book yeah thank you so much well kat thank you again this has been an amazing episode and i'm so grateful that you brought this um work to our listeners and to us um friends as we go into our week you know there will be the need for us to draw on the lessons of our ancestors whether it's you know, remembering the lives of C.T. Vivian and John Lewis and how their work is such a great guide for us um, as we move forward or whether it's looking into your own history and your own ancestry and thinking about those who have come before you that have taught you the true meaning of liberation and a theology and an ethics of movement and change. Um, Dr. Robin, we're both really blessed to have people that have come before us that can guide us in this work. Um, yes. And I, I just, I'm, I don't think I, I know I don't give, I, I don't, I don't, I don't thank my ancestors enough for um, the groundwork they laid for me. And I, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to do better at that. I think, you know, part of this work of activist theology is restoring ourselves and, mm. and, and, and the stories also precede us. Right. And so right. I think Kat gives us um, a method and a strategy to reconnect with those who have come before us and to know where those stories live in our bodies. Yeah.
Yes. Mm. I'm going to sit with that. I'm going to sit with it. And I hope you all sit with it too, friends. Um, until we talk with you next week, uh, reminder, feel free to follow us on um, all of the socials at Activist Theology. Don't forget that Activist and Theology share a T. And we will be back with you next week. We have another amazing episode planned. We know you're going to love it. And we're grateful that you're on this journey with us. It's all about freedom. It is. I appreciate you, Dr. Robin. See you later. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. <laughs>